0: Well, with our continued prayer that God would bless us together, we want to ask you to turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 37. We'll just read down through the 41st verse of Acts chapter 2. probably everyone here in this room has read these verses, studied this particular section of Scripture, and it will not be new to you. And no doubt, most of what I say here today will not be new, if not everything I say. Will not have been said somewhere by someone before. And something very much similar to what you have probably heard before as well. But the mandate of God's people and the mandate of a minister of the gospel, a preacher, is to preach the word of God. It isn't to entice or entertain. It isn't to come up with his own ideas. And the longer that I go in the ministry, the more I understand the wisdom in that, that God gave. We can go no further than this book. And you may have heard this message before in many ways. And yet, God has sent it once again. And so I pray that we'll do our best to hear, to listen to what He has to say. And the title for the thought today is What Should I Do with the Gospel? What should I do with the gospel? Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The gospel often is considered something that we merely hear. That we come and a preacher preaches the word and we hear it, and certainly Hearing is a necessary component. But often we don't think about the reality that once the gospel has been presented, we have something to do. And the question is, what should I do with the gospel? I pray that we don't think that the gospel is something that we merely consume with our ears, and then we move on about our life, but that it so grasps us, that the gospel is so real to us, that the words of the scripture become more than just words, but they become the very words of God in our heart to such a point that we have to ask ourselves This question that these people ask some 2,000 years ago what should we do? It's a good question. It's the question in many respects. But far too often we think of going to church as just consuming and listening to a message, and in far too many places, that's more about entertainment and even information and education than it is. The reality that the God of this world has written to you and to me a message that he wants us to know, and these people on this day heard this message preached by the Apostle Peter, and it convicted their hearts, and we're going to talk about that today. But what should you do with the gospel? What should I do with the gospel? What should one who has been saved already do with the gospel? Are we finished with it once we've been saved? Is it something that we think of merely in the past tense? Or do we again ask ourselves the question today and every day, what should I do with the gospel? You know, when you've been told something, you're accountable for that information. You can't claim ignorance of of a piece of knowledge that you have been told. And when we Understand and hear the gospel. It comes down to this question then, what should I do? What must I do with the gospel? And this passage of scripture, of course, as you no doubt already know, we started in the middle of this scene in verse 37. The Holy Spirit had come down just as Jesus had promised that he would. And the people began to speak in languages that all the people present could understand. It was not an unknown tongue, but they were known languages. People understood. The miracle was that everyone understood what everyone else was saying, and there is something about the Holy Spirit of God that makes that happen in many ways even yet today. With words that communicate, and the Spirit of God takes those words and makes it so that we all understand what God is trying to say to us as a people. And Peter had preached the gospel to these people. He presented to them Christ. He told them who he was, and he told them what they had done. And they were hearing this message, and it says, when they heard this, and of course, the this that they had heard is the gospel. The message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ And hearing the gospel, as we've said, is essential. And for the people in the crowd, the way to God that they had understood to this point, and put yourself in the minds of many of these people, their understanding was the way I get to God is the good works that I do. If I just perform good works, if I obey the law, if I'm careful to observe every T, the crossing of every T and, and the dotting of every I in the law, then God will be pleased with me. If I am of Jewish heritage, then I am a person of God and His family. These people on this day heard a message far different from that, but their idea was that they thought they got to heaven based on their works. And Peter had just told them the exact opposite. He told them the gospel that Jesus Christ alone is the one who merits salvation, not your works or mine. But this message was so different from anything else they had heard before. This was life changing stuff that they were listening to. It's difficult to overstate just how different this message was to the ones they were used to hearing. Because the ones they were used to hearing was obey the law, obey the commandments of the Torah. Do this, don't do that. And God will be pleased with you. It was all about your works and Peter, a Jew, standing amidst a people that had been ridiculed and mocked and no doubt for these days after Jesus had been crucified, people looking at these disciples and these followers of Christ as they were assembled together, but seemingly doing nothing as the crowd looked upon them and thought how sad these people must be. But on this day, when the Spirit of God came and he changed everything and Peter preached a sermon that people heard and understood, it was this message of the gospel which is is Christ Jesus is the only way to heaven and not your good works. I remember when I was convicted of sin. I remember when this day happened for me. I remember sitting there and thinking that that I wasn't saved, and and you know my story of how I thought that I was, and, and yet that day I understood I wasn't. I remember the day the gospel penetrated my heart. I remember that day. And, and it was after, long after that it had first penetrated my ears. I'd heard it. From the time my parents who adopted me brought me into their home, they sent me to church and we went to church and I heard the gospel, but I didn't hear it from God until I was 11 years old. And he convicted me that day and I knew that I was lost and I was like these people. What am I, what should, what am I supposed to do? What should I do with the gospel? Peter, of course, is going to answer the question. But first, we understand that this gospel message is what must penetrate the heart. And it must go far deeper than just your ears. It's been called the greatest story that's ever been told for a reason. It's far greater than any other story that's ever been told and ever will be. This gospel tells you that you can have peace with God. It tells you that you can have a certain home in heaven for eternity. It tells you who you really are and who he is. It tells you that you don't ever have to be alone in the world. It tells you that those who are with you are greater than those who are against you. It tells you that you can have fellowship with other believers. That's a friendship and a companionship that is far deeper and far more meaningful than any other friendship can have can be in the world. It tells you these things and many others. And when they heard this, This gospel, this was the trigger of everything that changed in their life and it's been the trigger of what has been the eternal change of countless people through the ages that has changed not only their life here but eternity that is to come. What must I do? What should I do with this gospel? What should you do with it? Peter answers the question. But as we read and take note of the entire situation, when they heard this, what happened? When they heard this, this gospel, it says they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. We call that conviction. That's what we use this word to describe, this conviction. And it is an essential component of salvation. And it is a right and appropriate response to the gospel. What should I do with the gospel? You should take a moment and you should understand what the gospel means and you should experience this conviction that these people talked about. Peter had told them. Peter had told them that they Had crucified the Son of God. Before our reading today in verse 36, Peter said this Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Why were they convicted? Why were they cut to the heart? Because they had just been told the truth. You put this one, this Christ, this one that the Old Testament and Peter had, with the help of the Holy Spirit, already laid all of this out of how the Old Testament was saying there would be one who would come and be the sacrifice for our sins, would be the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sins of the world, and it was Jesus. And he tells them and he points to them and he says, and you put him on the cross. Conviction is a completely and entirely appropriate response to the gospel of Christ. In fact, I would venture to say this, that when we first hear the gospel and when it penetrates our heart, there is no other more appropriate response to the gospel than conviction and brokenness. And a feeling of helplessness and of of just sin that, that comes around us. And we understand it in this personal responsibility and accountability that sets up in our hearts before God. Can you imagine being there on this day? And I'd say if you're saved, you can. When Peter says you have killed and crucified the son of God. When the Spirit of God convicts us, he brings to our awareness our sin and our responsibility and accountability to God. One of the greatest obstacles in the way of people coming to the Lord is their unwillingness, our unwillingness to see ourselves and themselves as being accountable to God. Satan has with his chisel and his lies chipped away at this understanding of accountability in the human experience we think accountability and we almost almost immediately think it's a bad thing we don't want to be held accountable we want to be able to do what we want to do, say what we want to say, and have all of those things done without any accountability for what it, is, what it is and what we have done. But accountability, though it's seen as a bad thing, is a good thing. Think for a minute what your life would be like without accountability. Think how different it would be if there were no accountability for reckless driving. The roads would be far more dangerous than they are right now. If there was no accountability for stealing then, or murdering or doing any of these other things, there would be, we'd be living in a world where only the strongest survive. If there was no accountability, we would all be in a terrible, terrible place. But people don't want to think of themselves as accountable to God. But we know deep inside us that we are. I think God has wired in us an accountability, awareness that there's something greater than we are. but We distance it, but many many understand accountability in reverse and in the wrong direction when it comes to God. Satan has been so successful at confusing and lying to us for so long that people today seem to think that it's God who is accountable to us. It's what so many seem to think about. They feel that God is accountable to them rather than they being accountable to God. It's one of the clearest evidences of our lack of a biblical mindset and a biblical worldview is this sense that God somehow is accountable to me when things go wrong. God is blamed. After all, isn't he here to make sure my life goes such that I can be living my best life now? When we don't get better from an illness, we blame God. When we fall into difficult financial times, we blame God. We cry out to God in our difficulties with an attitude expecting God to deliver us because isn't He there to make sure I'm okay? We've made Him accountable to us. We feel our judgment is right and God's judgment is wrong. But this is not how the Bible talks about accountability. It's the other way around. 180 degrees different from that. We, you, and me, and everyone are accountable to Him. And these people on this day, when they heard the gospel, they understood that and it convicted them it broke their heart. It made them understand their danger. It made them understand that God in His justice could condemn them to an eternal separation if that is what He desired. But this accountability that we've turned around is not how we read about it in Scripture. I want to read to you from the book of Job in several places here. Bear with me as I do because it demonstrates this so clearly. In Job 38, 4-12, God speaking to Job, where were you when when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. We think of that today with so many. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, says God. He has a sense of humor. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or in other words, what is it established on? What is it resting on? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you? God is saying to Job, where were you when, or when I shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment with thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here your proud waves will be stayed. Saying to Job, where were you when I told the sea, you can come only to this far and that's it. Where were you when I hung the earth on nothing? Where were you when the angels sang my praises? When I called all of this into existence? Where were you when I established the distance and the size and the measurements of the earth? Surely you know. We think God accountable to us and God goes on for the rest of chapter 38 and all of chapter 39 asking question after question after question reminding Job who he is and who Job is. One of God's creations. He's not God and his understanding and power and wisdom is nothing next to God's and his finishing question to Job Or Job said to God, after God finishes speaking to him for chapter 38 and 39, and I can just imagine, it's just blow after blow after blow from God himself to Job. Where were you when I did this? Who are you next to me? Job says this in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Job, or excuse me, God said this to Job. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Many think of the book of Job as one that is all about patience, the patience of Job, as so many say, and certainly, certainly patience is discovered in the pages of the book of Job, but that's not the message of Job. This book is about far more than that. It's it's. This book resets our understanding of what it means to be human in a fallen world before a righteous and holy God. Now from chapter 3 in the book of Job all the way to chapter 37, 35 of the 42 chapters of Job, Job and his friends are arguing and discussing and debating his predicament. 35 of the 42 chapters, it's men talking to one another, trying to understand and puzzle out why Job was having to endure all that he's having to endure. 35 chapters of why this and why that. 35 chapters intermixed with things like Job saying he's repented or he just he was sad he was ever even born into the world and just question after question and they're trying to make sense of it and Job's three friends, of course, have all the answers and they seem to understand everything, but for 35 chapters, they just go on and on and on and they never get the point. But then God shows up and two chapters later... He's sorted it all out. He's brought clarity to the confusion. And that's what happens when God comes and speaks. And that's what happens when the gospel message is presented. You're lost. And God has let you know that you're lost and you're a sinner separated from him. And you can talk and talk and talk all day long and good go to friend after friend after friend and debate and discuss and philosophize and theorize and do all of these things. But the reality is when God speaks there's clarity and the question is not what does he mean? The question is what should I do with what he means? What should I do with this gospel? He'll let us struggle to find answers. God will. He'll let us seek the counsel of others. He'll allow us to feel sorry for ourselves and throw little pity parties. He'll even allow us to blame Him for a time. But at some point, God comes. He'll come on the scene and clarity will completely obliterate the confusion and you'll understand but in the moment as these people stood before peter asking that question what must i do and after god keeps goes goes on after god has spoken all of these things here's job's answer in verse 3 through 5 of chapter 40 then job answered the lord and said behold i am of small account I am of small account, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth, I have spoken once and I'll not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I am of small account, Job said. People today are desperate to see themselves as their own God. And that is the very reason they are imprisoned by their own sin and helplessness. When we see ourselves next to God, it's, I was reading an article, kind of strange article, of course. The article was, do we really eat eight spiders a year while asleep? And the article was talking about the spider, thinking that, you know what, spiders, we to spiders are like mountains to us. They don't notice that, and it's kind of a silly idea. That's that's not even beginning to say just how big God is compared to you and to me. But we want to be the heroes of our own story. We want to be the ones in control. We want to be the ones to have pride and of, of what we've done and all of these things, but When Job is finished hearing from God, he simply says, I am of small account. What am I going to answer to you? Where was I when you laid the foundations of the world? I was nowhere, God. Nowhere in existence. I was in your mind, but I didn't exist. I wasn't doing anything to bring my existence uh, into being. That was all you. Have you ever felt, though, when God when you feel like maybe God's being a little bit unfair and then you go on for your 35 chapters and you argue and you discuss and you think and you stay awake at night and you wonder and though you might not call it this you do we do sometimes question God God what are you doing what you're doing the inference is it's not right and and ever been in that situation and then have God come and when he finishes speaking, all you can do is put your hand over your mouth. When he brings understanding and clarity. Even after this, in Job, God continues to question and challenge Job through the rest of chapter 40 and 41 so that he would realize, so Job would realize the folly of his thinking, his questioning, his doubting of God to show just how little Job really understood. And after this second admonition, From God in these chapters, Job says this in verse 1 through 6 of chapter 42. Then Job answered and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this brings us back to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. What shall we do? Once this conviction has set up and it is a reality and we understand who God is and who we are through that conviction, we are in the similar place as these people in Acts chapter 2. What shall we do? And again, it's a good question and it's the right question. They're to be commended, at least in some respect, for Asking it and not ignoring the issue. They didn't postpone it. They didn't put it off for another day. They didn't let whatever they had planned in the rest of the day distract them from this most important question. Now, conviction is not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's not an experience that we enjoy going through, but it's necessary. It's essential. It's absolutely necessary. Without it... These men wouldn't have ever even asked the question, what must I do with the gospel? It has just gone on about their day and no doubt there were many that did. But this is the central issue at hand in every church and in every life. What should I do with the gospel? There's too much of Christianity focused on asking God to do more but smaller things than he's already done. Heal my physical body, sustain my life financially. Insert empty promise of the prosperity preacher here. Asking God to do more but less than what He's already done. Too many people leave their church services with answers, with no answers to the questions that they need. They have answers to all kinds of other questions, how to Treat your spouse, how to have good relationships, how to save a little bit of money, how to do this and how to be a, a enjoy community and do more good deeds and treat people well and raise happier children. But the question isn't asked, what should I do with the gospel? And that's the most important question. What should I do with the gospel? And what a terrible waste it is that so many people, some come so close to it and yet are so far away. We should come to God for these other things. Don't misunderstand. We should come to God with questions about how to raise our children and how to live together and how to honor him and do all of these things. But that's not the most fundamental question. What should I do with the gospel? When you hear a preacher, someone in your life telling you what you should do to be a good person, or even what you should do uh, to be saved, or what you should do with your life, I want you to listen for something behind the words, and that is, why? Why should I tithe? Why should I love my wife sacrificially? Why should I do good deeds? Why should I raise children who are Knowledgeable of who God is. Why should I do these things? That's really the question that needs to be asked behind all these other questions. And if the answer that you discern from the why is that is so that it's about you and not God, you need to instantly consider what you're hearing. Why should we do these things? Because it honors and glorifies God. If the answers provided are not to these why questions is so that you might be healthy, wealthy, and wise, then you need to ask again and you need to understand what exactly you're being told. And if he is not answering, the person's not answering the right questions, then you need to look elsewhere. Finally, as we move into the answer in verse 38, this is what you must do. And it's in three hearts. First, repent. It's the first thing Peter says. Peter said to them, repent. Before anything else comes in the Christian life, there must be repentance. It's the first thing. Before there can be any good works done in and through Christ, there must be repentance. Repentance. It's what Peter said. It's what John said. It's what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's what John the Baptist said. It's what Mark said. It's what all of the writers of the New Testament would encourage. Repent. And it's what Peter says here. Repent. It's the first thing. If, if we try to do these good deeds, if we try to be Christian prior to repentance... Prior to salvation, there are merely good deeds that more often than not tend to religious pride, not humility and brokenness before God. But why repent? Remember, I just asked you, ask the question why. Why repent? Because you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. And if you feel that conviction, you know that is true. In need of forgiveness from a righteous and holy God who you have wronged. You might say, I'm not that bad, others are far worse than me. I would venture to say, we probably all think that. Others are, I'm not that bad, and others are far worse than me. And to that, I simply say, you are living a life that isn't yours to live in whatever way you desire. You're drawing air into your lungs that isn't yours, it's not yours. Your heart is beating just because it does, not because you're telling it to. You're alive because God has given you life, not because you've given it or sustained it. I'm not that bad and I'm not near as bad as others and a lot of people are far worse than me. Really, let's think about this for a minute. You are living a life that has been given to you and if you've not submitted it to God, then you're in open rebellion against Him. These thoughts were once understood much more in our nation than it is today. To say these things today in the ears and the minds of many is shocking. But I want these words to be as a hammer that shatters the stone and the rock of rebellion and ignorance and apathy and hearts absent of God. So... I call to you as Peter did, repent. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If God has called to you and you have been convicted and cut to the heart and you're crying out in your own heart, what should I do? The answer is repent. Cry out to God for forgiveness and you'll find it according to First John. Trust God and take him at his word. Seek him until you find him. Until you know him. Until peace replaces the conviction. Until forgiveness replaces the guilt. Until knowledge replaces the confusion. Until you can stand and say, I know him. I understand that I was a sinner and that I took, that Christ took my sins upon Himself on the cross. I understand that and I recognize that, but I have come to Him and submitted to Him and I've asked Him to forgive me and He has and I know Him and He's my God now and I am His child now and it will be like this forever and forever and I pray to you and I ask to you uh, that you would just repent. That's what Peter said to do. Repent trust him but that's not it once repentance is had in the heart and it's felt and it's experienced and repentance is truly done then salvation comes but that's not where Peter finished be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ though repentance to salvation is the first thing It's not the only thing that we should do with the gospel. What should we do? These people said when Peter says, repent and be baptized. And you should too. If you've repented, we should be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you've repented and found God, there's more that should be done with the gospel You should make a public profession of that to the world, of your faith and your commitment to following God by baptism and join with other believers in a local church. It's what the Bible tells us to do. It is now an an issue of obedience in life, not just repentance for it. It's now about the salvation of others. Not just your own. What should I do with the gospel? Peter says, repent first. Repent first. But then he says, and be baptized. And I understand and recognize the theological battlefield that Acts 2.38 has been over the centuries, and those who will claim that baptism is necessary for salvation, this verse of Scripture, without getting into all of the theological weightiness of that argument, this verse is saying, repent because you've been saved, or excuse me, be baptized because you've been saved, repent and be saved and be baptized because of that, and live before the world as a witness to others. And then he says, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What should I do with the gospel? You should repent and be saved, be baptized and join a church and then live in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We should be spiritually minded people because of the gospel of Christ. When we wake up on a Monday morning and we ask ourselves this question, what should I do with the gospel? We should understand that there's three, there's an answer to that in three parts. Be saved, join a church and be baptized as a public profession of that and then live of the Holy Spirit. What should I do today because of the gospel? I should live in the spirit of God. I should be spiritually minded as I go about my life. Our minds should rest on eternal things and God's glory, not temporary things here on earth. The Spirit's presence to guide, the Spirit's presence to protect, and the Spirit's presence to love God and to love others. That's what I should do with the gospel. You see the ongoing reality of the Christian life in this? You see the ongoing reality of the answer that Peter gave. What shall we do with the gospel? Repent, it's a verb. Be baptized, it's a verb. Receive the Holy Spirit is yet still a verb. Christian life is a verb, it's not a noun. It's not about what happened merely years ago. It's about what's going on today. It's not something merely that you did. It's something that continues with you today. But if you have allowed the world to distract you from the question, what should I do with the gospel? And I wonder in a moment of honesty, if we ask ourselves that question, those of us who know the Lord, if we've allowed the world to distract us from the answer, it's time that we ask God to forgive us and to start answering the question anew. What should I do with the gospel? What should I do with the message that Christ died for all men everywhere? What should I do with the gospel that is the only hope for any man, woman, or child on the face of the earth today? What should I do with this? Does it not tell us that in every moment of our day we should be looking for an opportunity to share this gospel with the world? But if you've allowed the world to distract you from the question, I hope that today you'll be reminded of the question and the answers. If you've been saved, if you've not been saved, I pray that you repent and you're saved. That's the first thing you must do with the gospel. If you've been saved but not been baptized, I pray that you be baptized. That's the second thing that Peter said. And if you've been saved and baptized, then I pray the third thing is an ongoing reality in your life. You're living in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you should do with the gospel. It's not something that's just heard. It's something that's lived. I pray that the Lord would be in our hearts, that this word would lodge where he would have it to go. And we leave it with him at this time. Let's have a song.